welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? Uh, another Knock On Podcast. I'm... This one's been one I've wanted to do for a while. I'm with, what's the new official current position? Co-CEO? Co-CEO, like a co-pilot. Co-CEO or COO? CEO. That's, yeah. I like the CEO. Co-CEO. This is Tom Davin, currently with Black Rifle, but dude, your your accolades, your resume is so impressive. You're one of those people that if you can get some time around someone like you you just you have to just empty your brain and just like squeegee it out so it's <laughs> fully ready to just soak in any type of information that you give out i really appreciate that about you you your background is tremendous i mean right now you're with black rifle but pre the last role you did was with 511 511 right? tactical Took them out of law enforcement into the mainstream, particularly building out the retail stores, which everybody thought, that's a really dumb idea. There's 65 of them now. They're all doing great. Well, I went to my first one ever in uh, Tucson two weeks ago, and one of the guys in there was a knock-on follower, and he had saw that I was at PSE and sent a message and said, have them come by. And So I went in there, and that was my first time looking at kind of looking at the entire I didn't realize how vast it was if I'm honest you know all the 511 stuff I've seen have either been on like wardens officers or you know obviously like Andy I've seen you know Matt and Evan wear right. some 511 stuff and I think Andy gave me a pair of 511 jeans when we first met you know I, I saw some jeans that he had that had some pockets that were pretty cool and i talked to him about them and he, the defender he, flex gene it, yeah and oh he, yeah <laughs> so before that Pan well Express, hang on let me wait. just tell you oh. about jeans so that's an example of we put men in stretch pants that mm. is one of my legacies you know you think about it we took athletic dudes like you and put them in these defender flex jeans that have a mechanical stretch not lycra okay mechanical stretch and all of a sudden guys are doing squats and throat squat squat thrust and going <laughs> this is unbelievable i said you just figured out what women have known for decades <laughs> pants with stretch are a lot more comfortable and functional did you were did you walk into the meeting with that idea or did you just support the fact that when a designer came forward with it you're like we can make this work no it was really more my partner francisco morales who runs 511 today he and i were sitting around this like seven or eight years ago it's like what can we do to shake up the men's tactical pant business what if we made the pants more slim cut, a little more stylish, same function, and we added stretch? It was like, ooh. <laughs> the big problem, though, is you got to charge 10 or 20 bucks more to go with the expensive fabric. But and that's nothing now. Like, jean, that yeah. was back when, you know, you'd pay 39 bucks for a pair of right. Wranglers or something. But then all of a sudden, rock revivals came out, and people were having a heart attack in $100 jeans. Right. But now, now it's to the point where I've, I've – seen people that 
told me how much their jeans were and <laughs> I almost wanted to just slap them when they turned around right. and be like, what? They're probably bragging about it. But think <laughs> about that cop or deputy sheriff or even a military guy. When you say these pants are 59, 69, 79 bucks, they're like, are you crazy? Do you think yeah. I'm made of money? I got hate mail. I got burned in F2 for a while. And I said, just try the pants. Just put them on. It's like, ooh, these are good. Yeah, they budget them for about $20 dockers <laughs> or something stupid. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I love uh, dealing with guys in several different departments. And, man, they have the tightest budgets, oh, I swear. Brutal. I mean, it, my hat's off to them because they really – they really love their job, you know, because they're, I really feel like they're underpaid no for, doubt. for all of them, for what they do, to be honest. And the risks they take every day. Oh yeah. 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 Every day. Uh, so th- before that you were, is that when you were Panda Express? I ran Panda Express partnering with Andrew and Peggy Chung, the founders. So literally I worked for a mom and pop Chinese chain. <laughs> Happened to be 600 million in revenue when I got there and about a billion three when I left, but still like to say I worked in mom-and-pop Chinese. And they made you work behind the counter for a little while? To, to that was my plan. It was a little bit of undercover boss, so I, I rolled in there. I know a little bit about cooking. I'm not <laughs> sure I can keep up with you, John, but I said, look, don't tell anybody I'm joining the company. I'll just be some generic headquarters guy. I'm going to four different restaurants for two weeks apiece, and I'm just going to go through the base restaurant manager training program. Yeah. So I did. You know, I probably wasn't the best guy ever to go through training, but of course I came out of that with a lot of relationships, a lot of insights about what really happens at the store and a whole bunch of ideas on how to make training better. Bring your mic up a little bit so it doesn't hit your uh, jacket. Your, yeah, there you go. But um, So I worked at McDonald's for a, lo- for a lot of my high school time. I worked there at different times. And when I started, it was mainly because I needed a secondary job. Yeah, you know, I was I was kind of doing a little bit of burger flipping at a at a local ski ski hill, um, so I could get a free ski pass. But I also nice. needed some other gas money, and ended up getting a a job at McDonald's just because the hours fit. If I'm honest, and within I think the first day, I remember going into the the main manager's office, and I kind of just told him, I said, man. I can't work like this because uh, it was there was such scuttlebutt in mm. the back in the grill area. I was, oh, you know, I might have been war- like on the bun toaster or doing <laughs> fries or something, right. but the disarray and the bickering and like yeah. lack of leadership, it was it was a I'd never experienced that because I was always part of teams. So I was, right. you know, I just it was like there were too many people trying to be a leader that were totally unqualified to do that. And I just, I, I expressed that to him and he just said, well, what do you need to do? And I said, people need to be delegated specific assignments. Everybody needs to run their play. And in right. the end, we're going to, you know, we're going to be able to, to deliver what we need to, you know, to that top shelf so I can go forward to the counter. And he just kind of reached behind his desk and shuffled around and, pulled out a blue shirt and he just threw it at me and he said put that on you're the manager <laughs> and i i'm like what battlefield promotion yeah and i literally had like six videos or whatever that you watch in the basement on right. you know how to slide fries into the box so that they're all standing up and presentable and how to make sure the cheese right. isn't halfway off the freaking bun because 
I was seeing them not do that and it was already bothering me that it wasn't being done that way. Cause I know when I take a hamburger out of a dang wrapper, this is hilarious. We're at, we're at Traeger right now. Jeremy Andrus just walked in. It's Absolute up, machine. Be careful. We'll just suck you in hello. here. You What's up, buddy? You look like you're busy. Go get some of those street tacos. I'm there. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, we just got done eating Unreal Axis street tacos that we took. We I cooked them for a full day for some some cool Traeger recipe videos, uh, just to get sidetracked a little bit. And we started serving them to a few guys in the kitchen, and then within ten minutes, I don't know if they have a chain text within this building, but it got to the point where I felt like I was at a food truck. There was just a line. The jungle tom-toms. <laughs> yeah. But I um, I don't know. I just I was trying to just follow protocol of what they showed, and I saw none of that happening. So I thought, well, no wonder the lines are too long. No wonder right. pe- food's being slidden back up because it wasn't correct. And so, yeah, I went in and, and told him, and then he came out and just said, your manager. So I became, you know, I don't know if it was like shift manager or swing manager or something, but right. that, that's what I did. And, um, you just treat it like a team sport, which it is. Yeah. And then I ended up closed. I was, a, I closed. I think that's why with my hours for like for football practice and everything, I, I, I ran the last shift. And then funny enough, one time I was working the late shift and there was this group of kids that always came in that were always troublemakers. And, people had told me about them and I was I did a pretty good job of keeping them chilled out because when they would come in it would be a group of like four or five dudes in long black coats and you know they were just wanting to cause some trouble you know I would just take a basket of french fries and dump it on a tray and just be like hey guys we just got a bunch of leftover fries you guys want these and then it would just just completely like extinguish the fire bribing people with food yeah yeah i mean it worked honestly it worked it kept the peace and they probably came back every night for free fries yeah they probably that's probably is they probably is why they came by but i remember one time i was working the drive-through in this car you know teenagers and you know i was just as bad but they ended up coming by the drive-through window and they threw this milkshake against the window and it just like splatted all across it. And Ooh. I opened it up and just flew out that drive through window and like ran this car down and grabbed one of the kids and pulled them out. And I'm like, you're going to clean this. And I, I was literally had them by like the back of the shirt and I'm taking them back up to clean it. And crazily enough, the main GM of the chain, cause normally there's like a GM that has multiple stores regional guy and occasionally they'll go through as a customer you know what i mean (laughs) just to see how the service is he was next in line at the drive-thru when he saw that guy do that and you know i had no idea but i ended up flying out that and and uh grabbing that guy and coming back and giving him a bucket and soap and water and having him clean it all up and stuff and i apologized to the guy and he just said no problem i'll just come in (laughs) <laughs> and then he came in and then he introduced himself. And then the next day, my main store manager came to me and he goes, Hey, I think you're going to get a new role here, you <laughs> know? And so, yeah, I got to, See I got to get my button up shirt right. at that point. But no, I feel like 
You big, could have had a career in fast food, John. What could have happened, man? Well, my kind of my point to that was all those little things, they yeah. all add up to I just feel like all those little things, if you do these little jobs right, yeah. other opportunities open, like other doors open, you know, and I'd see it. I say that all the time for people that are wanting to get into archery and be an ambassador. I tell people, you can't just get an Instagram account, do the same type of things and expect to be a fully sponsored person. Like that's right. not how it worked. I started out working for free in an archery shop, helping out an archery manager, eventually got him to hire me after I proved that I could do the job, worked for minimum right. wage. Loving Real- every minute of it because you love yeah, the Yeah, I did. The and, and then realized I had a difference in opinion from the guy that owned the store because mm-hmm. I was trying to give customers more one-on-one time with training. And he just said, Customers that buy a new bow get 15 minutes. We don't, you can't work with them for an hour. You know wow. what I mean? And he just said, you know, we need, we need this, we need to keep this cookie cutter going. And I just said, well, if no one's in the store and someone makes a brand new buy, I think it's important that you, right. sp- that you spend the time with them. And yeah. he just said, well, if that's what you feel like you should do, then you need to have your own archery shop. <laughs> and so fast forward, you know, a month or so later, I started an archery shop, you know, called Ten Ring Archery in a little twenty by thirty pole shed. Right. And I was a Matthew or I was a Matthews shooter, a contracted Matthews shooter, couldn't get the Matthews line, but bought and sold high country bows hmm. because it was the only one I could get, more or less being like kind of an unofficial archery shop, you know, yeah. but it was the same thing, just really focused on customer service, making sure when a guy came and bought a bow, it worked well enough to where he told it was all word of mouth, you know, and, and then next thing you know, Matthews, you know, Matthews really liked my one-on-one interaction with Mm -hmm. people and offered me a job internally. But, you know, I just, I think that you have to, you have to do the grassroots roles within certain things. Otherwise, you really don't appreciate what goes into that yeah. stuff. I have a saying that is the way you do the little things, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Oh yeah. And that applies if I'm hiring a manager after I do an interview, I walk them to their car. And when I tell people this, they won't let me see their car anymore. But if the car's a mess and you need somebody who's really organized, you know they're not going to be organized. Yeah. Because if they've got a clean, squared-away car, their workspace, their restaurant, whatever they're running is going to look the same. Yeah, you know, mechanics learn that. You know, you, th- it's rare that you go into a really good car dealership and a mechanic's toolbox looks like crap. Right. The ones that do never go on to to have those apprenticeships and things like that because just being able to – take something away and put it back in the same place that is the smallest little attribute to just solid work ethic and i think those same things don't just apply to business i think they apply to people that want to be good athletes if you want to be good at something you can't like you can't cut corners all the time. You know, you, you have to, it's like fletching your arrows, you know, you have to be meticulous and follow the protocol each and every time. And you're going to be more repetitive because of it. But some people just, I don't know why, but they, they have a really hard time finishing things. Or they're looking for the hack. 
Yeah. The hacks are very much in play now. What's the hack? What's the shortcut? Well, for a lot of things, there aren't shortcuts. You got to do the work. Especially earning roles like co-CEO, right? I mean, that's that's something that, you know, I'm sure you've had your share of really poor jobs and you've probably had your share of working for really poor bosses that maybe you weren't happy. But eventually you stick to it and you find the ones where you're able to learn, you're able to apply that work ethic. And then I feel like good leaders recognize it faster because it, they know it's, unfortunately, it seems like it's harder to come by. For sure. I always like people to know I'm working with you. You're not working for me. We're in this together. How do I help you achieve your dreams? I tell them, look, I'm very selfish. I want to win. I want to dominate. I want to be a great success in business. I'm going to do that by helping you be a success and achieve your dreams. I'm going to get there a long way, but if you're successful, how can I not be great? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's an awesome way to approach people because some people never see the end of being able to, to progress. You know, they see other people, that guy's been there for that long. But the reality is when you really work hard at something, people that are good leaders find a more important role for you. I mean, that that's yeah. what I would do right. for sure. I'd be like, you know what? Maybe I don't have a GM role, but this, this guy needs to like head up this other thing that right. I've been thinking about doing for a long time, but never had the right support. You know, I think sometimes people only see the positions that are laid out specifically, but right. a lot of times people that are very proactive in, I don't know, just proactive in being successful, they have way more than one iron in the fire. I mean, I know like, you know, you look at like Jeremy that came in, he's got people around him that that are all have multiple irons in the fire. They're all go-getters. He certainly is. You know, you and him went to lunch, I think, last week or a few weeks ago. And and it just seems like people like that gravitate together, you know. And and I was going to go back to your point on opportunity. A lot of people ask me, how do I get promoted? The best way to get promoted, just like you talked about at McDonald's, is do a great job at the role you have today. Crush that. Own your battle space. Yep. Then when people ask, how can we do this better? Put your hand up. Offer a recommendation. Yeah. You don't get promoted by saying, hey, boss, hey, John, when can I get promoted? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, no. Do your job, as they say at New England. Do it well. Make recommendations. Good things will come of that. Yeah, you want you, you want your superior, in at least in a workspace, you want your superior to be in some of those upper management meetings, being vocal for you because he is so on your side. He's like, this guy is, this guy's doing more than what we're paying him for. Like this guy's awesome. He's setting a new, he's setting a new benchmark for people. And that, that type of thing resonates. Now, before you're with Pan Express, you're with, I was a partner at a private equity firm called Brentwood Associates. While at Brentwood, I was the lead director on the board of Oakley, the sunglasses company. Yeah. Prior to that, I spent about eight years with Taco Bell and PepsiCo. What made you get into the food side of things? I loved food growing up. My mother had a catering business. Oh, really? Yeah, Ruth Davin. So I started out bartending, then started cooking. We did pigs in the ground, Hawaiian luau's, all this. Oh, you did? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
And what would happen is people started calling us saying, can you do a Super Bowl party? Can you do, you know, dinner for 50? Oh, wow. Put my hand over the phone. Mom, can we do dinner for 50 with Philomene Mignon? No problem. Okay, I'll get back to you with the price. <laughs> so I, I basically earned my money in high school in the food business and just loved it. So I started out in business as an investment banker post the Marine Corps and really didn't like it. I was in an office, knowledge worker, sitting at a computer, working the phones. I just found it a little dull and not satisfying. So I went to PepsiCo with an eye towards going to Taco Bell or Pizza Hut. Spent a couple years at headquarters and they said, all right, you're going out in the field, you're going to Nashville, Tennessee. And my wife said, where the F is Nashville? Because <laughs> we were living in the New York area at the time. But I got a division of 300 restaurants and it was like awesome. I was in heaven. Spent every day driving around to restaurants, leading people, training, serving customers. That was the best. And I've been in general management ever since because I love building teams and serving customers. It's really fun. It's a constant challenge. A lot of, a lot of what we've been doing has, it's, it's continually tackling opportunities. It's not ones that you necessarily have to, but you recognize the fact of, I could do that better in that space, or I could make that a little bit better if they did it this way. Right. And then, you know, I don't, at some point you need to draw a line, <laughs> but it's very addicting. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a competitive natured person, it's, it's almost a complex, you know, at some point I feel like I need to just, I got to be able to say no. Um, have, did you get to a point where you're the same way with that? Absolutely. You got to listen, then sort out all the input. You can't solve every problem, but if you have that problem solving mindset, just put together your hit list of here's what I'm going to work on. New problems arise, you reshuffle a deck. So did you ever go to college? I did. Yeah, I went to Duke University. Oh, you did go to Duke? Went to Duke, played lacrosse. And uh, the story I like to tell is my parents were both naval officers. And again, I worked with my mom in the catering business. She and my dad were so happy when I got a naval ROTC scholarship to pay for Duke. I studied physics. I was going to be a nuke power guy. And then halfway <laughs> through, I said... I'm joining the Marine Corps. I want to be out in the woods. I want to be killing bad guys. And they said, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> You're going to die. Marines die at the beach or they're miserable. And three days later, they die somewhere inland. <laughs> you could have been in the Navy wearing a white uniform, safe aboard an aircraft carrier or a submarine. I said, it's not for me. Got to be with a few of the proud. That's awesome. And so did, did you finish when you came back? So I finished Duke and then went into the Marine And then went. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's oh, yeah. awesome. It was great. You kind of did so. it backwards compared to most, I guess. Looking back, I think had I been able to enlist, that would have been better. You know, I have a lot of respect for guys like Andy Stumpf who enlist and later become officers because you've really earned your stripes if you enlist. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like that extra time of – sometimes I question – I know what I was like when I was 18, as much as I thought I knew <laughs> how much I knew, you you really don't at all. Right. And then you get to 25 and you think, man, was I a punk. Right. And then you get to 30 and you realize, okay, at 25, I was an idiot. <laughs> a cocky idiot. Yeah. And then, and then you get to 40 and you realize like, I don't even remember it all, but I just remember I'm lucky I got through it. Right. You know, I for the longest time in my late 20s, I thought if I could make it to 40, I'd be pretty good. Just based off, you know, a lot of 
cannonball decisions mm. where you, where I just tried to tackle things that were, you know, I don't know, like deciding to not go to college to shoot a bow. Right. I mean, that in itself is very stupid. Gutsy move. Get very gutsy move. And I tell people all the time, that move is like, um, you know those games where you, you like, well, I, the last time I saw one, it was at Chuck E. Cheese when I took <laughs> Harry. But, you know, you kind of drop a token at the top, and it just clicks down yeah. through all those pegs. And, you know, hopefully it lands in that one little slot that gives you 100, you know, t- tickets or whatever. Right. But you know it probably won't. But the thing is, you can put that in the same freaking spot, and you can let it go the exact same way hundred times over in the likelihood I don't know what the likelihood of it landing in that spot is, but they know it's not good, which no. is why the game's up there. And I feel like I did that one time and I landed in the smallest slot. And I feel like when I try to tell people what to do, I'm like, listen, I don't really know how I got it to work. I just right. know that every time there was a weird fork in the road on a decision I took a long time to think about what I needed to do and I almost overanalyzed it. But then when I did it, I was so destined to make sure I didn't make a mistake (laughs) that I think I made it work, you know? And, and I was that way a few weeks ago. I talked about this in my last podcast with, um, Brendan Hansen. He's a, a former Olympic medalist swimmer and, we were talking about when I was at the ATA show, I met with him the night before. Cause I was, I was genuinely nervous about how people would accept more importantly, our community, how they would accept me changing bow companies mm-hmm. because yeah. that was like, I know that that took a year off my life, no you doubt. know, debating that for, and I talked to you about it, you sure, know, it, your, it, your brand was tied to theirs. Yeah. People it was him as one. It, and so I was, it's like once I made the decision that that's what I'm going to do, it's almost like you have to, even if you're, even if you are wrong on a decision, I feel like you can fight your way out of it, you know, because this isn't, this isn't the first time I've made a decision that had me really perplexed Mm. to where even though, you know, my mom always taught me, she taught me when I was 18 and this is back when I had my archery shop, but Matthews was offering me a job because I told them no twice. And then Matt called me a third time about a month later and said, I'm calling you one more time. And if you don't take <laughs> this, he's like, I just really, we've got great candidates. Right. I just, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm just really feeling like I, you are my guy. And so he said, I'm going to give you one more chance to think about it. And I just had other commitments. My family had a ranch. We did bull riding. and You didn't say call my agent? No, and ranch rodeos and all this. And I remember the first two times my mom never gave me, you know, she never really told me what I should do. Yeah. But then finally on that third time she said, um, what I think you need to do is I think you need to write down all the pros for one and write down all the cons of the other. And she said, and you need to see which one outweighs the other because that it's a seesaw. So Mm -hmm. she said, write them down. And if it's balanced the other way, then don't do it. Right. But she said, in the end, if it is balanced the way of you leaving and going, you know, leaving the farm and 
going and doing that, she said the reality is family is always back here. Like you're, you always have a home place. Right. You know, the home place might be doing something different, but it'll always make room for you to come back. So that was kind of my security. But once I went, I realized I need to, to plow ahead at this. And then when I told people I turned pro as an archer, there were like, there were people (laughs) in my archery shop where I worked and in my local area, because there were people that were better than me locally. But I told myself, I'm like, I'm not going to get better around these people because the bar, even though like I'm close, but the bar between what we do here in this local area and what the bar is for professionals, there's such a difference. Right. And that's, and I felt that same thing when I went from like being a high school ball player to then going to some college camps, I realized like, okay, wait a minute. Oh yeah. This is... This is at a different the speed. Bar's a lot higher. Yeah, and it's just at a different speed. Yeah. It's at a whole different speed. And then and then you go and you stand next to some pro players and just as a human body naturally <laughs> develops, even though I feel like I was in awesome shape at 18, I, you know, I look back and I'm like, dang, you know, I didn't have any fat on me, nothing, you know, and then I look at myself at 25 and then I look at myself now and I think of, you know, if you're playing against a pro guy that's in his lower 30s, oh, yeah. he is just a different piece of meat and bone. Right. You know, it just, it is. And that's sure. why those college coaches are always like, don't worry about it. You know, when you're, when you're 21 and 22, you're going to be in a totally different space than, no you doubt. know, than these first two years. And when I turned pro, I just felt like, I had to just jump head first in, even though I wasn't burning the boats at the beach. Yeah, I had to just I had to just go, and then once I did it, I realized if you don't if you don't like you know I'm bobbing, if I don't freaking get up to the top and start swimming, I'm gonna look like an idiot out here. Like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna literally embarrass myself around people that I really respected in the pro ranks, and I just shot better out of just purely being scared to death of looking like an idiot. <laughs> it's commitment. You had to. Now, did you hunt much when you were growing up? I like your, I have those socks. Those are stance. Oh, I've yeah. got those My flag stance, socks. Red, white, and blue flag. I've got black rifle socks on, funny enough. Very I had nice. those on yesterday. Awesome. So did you hunt much at all? I did. Growing up in Pennsylvania, I did a lot of bird hunting. Oh, mostly. you did? Pheasant. Uh, my dad didn't hunt, but a couple of neighbors did. They dragged me along with their dogs. I had a ball doing that. So who who was the first one to introduce you? Was it like a grandpa, out of curiosity? No, it was a guy named Jeffrey Preston, who was a younger buddy of my father's in the publishing business. And my dad's like, hey, that's not for me, but you like shooting guns, go out with Jeff. So we'd go just in the uh, the fields around the house. We we're kind of western suburbs of Philadelphia. A lot so of good bird hunting out there. At any time, did you get into bigger game hunting at all? Not not at that point. A little bit in the Marine Corps. Did a little bow hunting for deer in Virginia at that point. Oh, you did? Yeah. Where were you based? Quantico. Oh, you were? Yeah. They're at the beginning and the end of my six years. So who, like, got, were there other guys that were bow hunting and told you about it? No, we just went to the local bow shop. My buddy Craig Kramer and I just said, hook us up. We bought some Hoyt bows. Put some Did you really? When was that? Oh, that's like 20 years ago. Do you remember what your first bow was? I don't. I'd have to go back and look at pictures. I'm trying to think. Let's see. 
It but sounds like a long time ago, but in, in the reality is it's really not that long ago, you know, truthfully. The first couple of times we went out, we got completely skunked, and my buddy Kramer gets in his 240Z, and he's driving home. Bam! It's a big old buck. Smokes one. <laughs> <laughs> Took his tag out, <laughs> checked it in at the ranger station. One shot, one kill. Did you hunt on base? Yeah. You did? That's did. cool. Yeah, it was, was Was there quite a few guys that did? Did you guys have no. t- practice targets or anything? We had practice targets, but not many guys hunted because they spent a lot of time out in the field. Then on weekends, went home to family, and I was single. That's awesome. My my dad, um, it's hard to... It's hard to drag military information out of him. It's really difficult. It comes in, it comes at odd times and normally and unfortunately it comes at times where I'm not prepared to ask him more mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's cuz there's times where I'm where I've I've talked to friends, you know, like Andy or or Evan and I'm like, you know, I I want to know and I want to be able to I don't not want to know yeah. i, I want to know but like how do i approach it so i get my head around approaching it but then when i go that way it's obvious like you know there's a wall up right but he's then all of a sudden mood. just you know there's times where he's around the right people or the right stories are being told and then it comes out but i'm not like then i'm not in the right mind frame to maybe say the right things right. you know but maybe you get them on a podcast with andy or evan see what they can drag out of them yeah, I'm worried about what they could, which is why, <laughs> you know, I've told them don't do that, you know. I need full I need full disclosure on what's happening um with that because I really don't know. Right. You know, I don't know. That's so what, that's what editing's for. <laughs> <laughs> but my dad he took me out um we would he took me out and I shot a 22 when I was really really young. I shot a 22 he like we like to fish you know we really like to fish he did ducks as well but the deer like deer and you know bigger game or rifles like for some reason Mm -hmm. he just you know he didn't want to see any more of that you know and my grandpa and my uncle got me into the 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 hunting and the bow hunting side of things and there's been a few flash points in time on the timeline, like, you know, normally they're about 10 years apart where he'll be like, Hey man, I want to, I want to go out with you. And I can tell he really has fun. But then I also know that once he shoots something and he thinks about it, like, I don't know if he doesn't like where it takes him or, or whatever, but, um, so interesting. Yeah. So I've had to, I've had to get to where I'm at from a hunting point of view, from, people that weren't my immediate family they were relatives so it's interesting when people just pick it up out of the blue you know i hunted when i lived in um, sparta wisconsin where i worked when i worked at matthews we had fort mccoy was Hmm. was really close to to my house and you could there was a couple different times where they were trying to to really thin down the number of deer within the barracks. So there were some of these like permitted hunts where you could go and, and hunt. And, and during that time, the, the war hadn't kicked off yet. So like late nineties, early two thousands, those bases were pretty dang skeleton crew. Right. You know what I mean? So you could, 
hunt around barracks and all kinds of really crazy stuff and you'd see many people yeah yeah it was totally different i i drew a permit and i i did a lot of hunting in the right on like that north impact area there's like a big they kind of like launch stuff from the south side of the base all the way to the north side and there's like the the north impact area is closed off because of you know munitions in there that could be dangerous but the hunting around the border of that was good because it was the largest more or less sanctuary in our whole area so people would hunt around that a lot and it was diy hunting you know i'd have to go out with a climber stand right go out and pitch black and i'd see other headlamps you know it was like hunting public land only you had to get a permit from you'd have to drive to a little ranger station you'd have to check in sign in kind of circle an area where you're going to be and and you know follow some some rules for the base but it was pretty interesting and then once mostly bow hunting at that point it was all bow hunting yeah Yeah, it was all bow hunting and then once the base got super active the, the number of guys that came in and you know it seemed like especially guys that were being deployed for a while and then coming back to the base it was obvious they had money to burn you know oh yeah and the the bow shops really flourished around that area during that time and it got harder to find places to hunt because there were so many military guys right. coming back and just, I don't know, maybe it was like you where, you, you know, you had some pocket money and they're right. like, let's just go get some bows and freaking shoot some deer, you know. Totally. Shoot some targets, shoot some deer. It's all good. So did you stick with that until you finally got one? Or I did, yeah, in Virginia. You did? And then I got out of the Marine Corps and went into business and had about a 20-year gap. Really? Yeah. So... How did you get to Utah? Were you here before you met Evan? No, but I had a condo out here. Yep. So Evan and I met about three years ago, 2017. I checked my notes. Evan had 20,000 subscribers to the coffee club at the time. And remember, he started the company in late 14. Yep. And so I invested in the company in late 2017, kind of the end of year three. And about a year and a half ago, Evan called up and said, hey, could you give us a hand? You know, you've been a good board member. We could use a little more business advice, a little gray hair. Would you mind being something like, I don't know, the chairman? And I had played a chairman role at 511 and then became CEO about a year ago. And I said, why don't we skip a step? Why don't I jump in and I'll do all the stuff that you don't want to do? So you run coffee, R&D, product development, be involved with social media. I'll do all the BS that you don't want to deal with, finance, operations, scaling the business. Marketing budgets. Yeah, and he, <laughs> he basically said, well, what are we going to call you? And I said, uh, how about co-CEO? It's kind of an amorphous title. No one has a clue what it means. And then at SHOT Show about a year ago, SHOT Show of 19, Evan and I were standing there, and he said, hey, I want you to meet uh, my, my partner. He's he's co-CEO and, and I'm co-CEO. And he was kind of stuttering through it. And after that, I said, let's never do that again. <laughs> I said, here's the deal. Pilot, co-pilot. You're CEO and founder. I'm co-CEO. I don't care about a title. Yeah. I can be the guy, whatever. Yeah. But you're founder and CEO. He went, yeah. works for me. Honestly, that's, that is a freaking awesome deal for Evan because a lot of times people that have a vision for a business and I'm that way right now there's things that that need to happen with our business 
one I'm not qualified for. <laughs> two, I would swan dive off a building if I really had to do it. So I just keep saying like, no, I'm just, yeah. you know, could we could we be bigger? Could we be better? Maybe. I'm just going to do what I like to do. I just like to, I like to sit down with Sharon, come up with creative designs. I like to figure out different ways to educate, figure out if there's a, a product within that education space that I've personally tailored. And if right. I, ha if I have, I need to tell people why, and then also show them how. Right. And that's what I really like to do. And I, w you know, I kind of wish I had that right, per that right person that could take on some of the stuff that I shouldn't say it's not stuff that I don't want to do. It's stuff that I don't even feel like I'd be good at, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And it's all about kind of a shared value set and complementary skill sets. That's what you're talking about. Well, it's, it's important for Black people. Rifle because yeah. the the when I tell people like where the company's at now, people look at me like, "What? Didn't they just come out?" <laughs> because it's to stunning. some people, they may not know you more than a year ago. Right. So then they realize this or they hear the size yeah. and then we're like, "Wait a minute." That's a lot of coffee. Yeah. How did th how did that happen? Right. You know, it's like a just taking hyperdrive yeah. from zero right to like we're in the game. When you think about Evan and you know Matt Best, Jared Taylor, the people who were there at the beginning, who would ever name a company Black Rifle Coffee? If you hired an ad agency or focus group team, they would <laughs> that would be the last on the list. It you would. can't do that. You never open a shop in an airport, Black Rifle Coffee, that's crazy. Evan's like, nope, I always had my Black Rifle and my coffee with me. It's called Black Rifle Coffee. So his purity of vision, his commitment to the concept, serving the veteran community, celebrating American, American values, and serving great coffee, it's genius because it's unique. Well, it's America. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's like, you know, I get up every morning and part of my routine of knowing that my day is going the right way is was always having a cup of coffee. Like it was always kind of having a cup of coffee. Just, I don't know. Getting your groove on. Yeah. Once that first cup was gone, I was like, okay, now I can start thinking about what do I need to do today? But then the cool thing is Evan's doing such an awesome job of, and this is why it's important that he, he's able to hand some stuff off because he's doing what he's really good at. Yeah. And that's showing people, you know, new roasts, showing them how to do different types of pours, showing them different types of supplies and how to use them. Because even though right now we're at Traeger, I had a few people that showed me the fundamentals of how to do it. And then I felt like I naturally challenged myself yeah. to get better at it. And with coffee, when I've been at camps with Evan and he comes out and he's like, doing something a different way. And there's been times where I've woke up and I'm like, man, something's, you know, burning around here and I'll go in and <laughs> Evan's got like a little, you know, Ethiopian freaking cooking pot. And he's like, you know, simmering right. over the stove and sure. blowing down the little Roasting tube beans. and blowing the, you know, blowing the, the, the skin off the beans. And I'm just like, okay, wait a and minute. You thought this it was is, Jiffy Pop. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this guy's on a whole new level. Oh, yeah. But he, he needs to do that so that he can continue to 
you know, I feel like when you're in the mix, then your state of flow happens easier. You know, I feel like when you stop and then you have to restart again quick, it's kind of like trying to stir cornstarch. Like if you just go slow all the time, you can move. Yeah. But as soon as you try to like initiate it fast, it, it locks up, you know? So you have to just have a continual movement, continual flow. And for him having you in that role, I'm sure that's allowing him to do the things that he really enjoys doing and probably keeps his head in the game. That, and I love doing what I'm doing in the business. <laughs> yeah. We have a ball, and you know, we'll talk multiple times every day and laugh and disagree on stuff and just sort it out. What do you feel like... What do you feel like the outdoor community? Because Black Rifle is starting to really invest yeah. into the hunting community, which I think is really important. For me, That's that was a big draw for me because the first time I met Evan, Matt, and JT, um, someone – I went by Black Rifle. It might have been Baker, crazy enough. <laughs> Baker, Yeah, it, it might have been Baker, brought me – to the office and and those guys were sitting in sitting in a conference room i think they were pretty new at moving in there and evan started talking to me about trad bows and he started then he started saying like you know i kind of want to try one of those handheld release aids and they were talking to me more about bows than that you know than rifles and it was it was probably just because it was something new and something that was going to be challenging for him but the more he's gotten into that and now we've done several hunts together and then also you know they've they've really jumped into the total archery challenge you guys have seen you know how passionate the bow hunting community is and i don't know i think it's these types of companies are so vital to the outdoor community um we have to have these outside demographics that come into the sport, love it for right. the same thing that I loved it for when I started it or when I started doing it. It, right. you know, because I started with a gun, you know, I was nine or 10 years old you know, I went deer hunting with a gun. And then within a year I realized, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it with a bow. And then when, and honestly, I think the reason why I stuck to it is because it was really hard. Like it, it wasn't oh, yeah. like with a gun where you went out and if you could make a shot, it happened. No, yes. you would see them. Then you got to hold your crap together. Then right. you have to make a shot with something that's way more technical oh, yeah. than a gun. At the right angle without brush. And you miss a lot. And yeah. when you miss, it's just like, you know, it's it's just like when I played baseball or, you know, peewee baseball and I went up and, you know, you're waiting your nine turns to be at bat and then you get struck out. Yeah. You're like, how soon can I get back up to bat? And that's, that's what bow hunting was for me is swings and misses, swings and misses, foul balls. And it's like, I just wanted to get back to the plate again. Right. And, you know, and it would suck when we would take our family trip down to Mississippi over Thanksgiving. We'd stay with our family. I'd hunt several days, finally get an opportunity, blow it. And then next (laughs) thing I know, we're in the car for 16 hours driving back to Northern Illinois and, I'm stuck there remembering that terrible shot for the next 300 days until we finally drive back down to see our family for Thanksgiving the next year, and then I'm back. So, yeah, I think people, 
people that try archery and bow hunting, they, they love that same type of challenge to it. And when people from an outside demographic, especially something as big as black rifle come in, I feel like our community has to embrace that because it is the best segue to open doors to the masses. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. When you think about our core demographic at Black Rifle, over 22 million U.S. military veterans, you got another two to three million active duty and reservists. So you've got a cohort of, call it 25, 26 million who are aware of Black Rifle. If they're not all hunters and bow hunters specifically, it's so adjacent to what they've done before. It's just a natural crossover. Yep. And most military people are complete gearheads if you're a gearhead, archery is the sport for you. What do you, f- from an outside perspective and someone, you know, I I intentionally let everyone hear how awesome you are, you know, honestly, and your background, because this is really important to me and, and, the, and the longevity of our sport, you know, or, or our passion. Right. But from someone that has had all those accolades that you've had and when you look at what we're doing are there things that you see us doing that you know is going to really limit our potential to grow or or potentially even you know kill it down the road yeah we as a sport or we as not just as John probably Dudley. as a no as a as a hunting yeah. you know like the hunting community because right. obviously you guys are getting into this demographic yes. so you're even though you bow hunted right you have a very outside perspective at a number of huge successful type places and you guys i'm sure throughout oakley they've sponsored a hundred different types oh, of yeah. sporting demographics right, right? What are some of the things that you see where you might raise an eyebrow like, hmm? Well, the big question I have that relates to that is, how do you get people started? Because I think bow hunting and archery in general is very aspirational. But people look at that and take our company, for example, Black Rifle, 150, 160 people. They're going to look at John Dudley, Evan Hafer, Matt Best, and watch a video and say, I could never do that. I'm, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> so how do we lower the bar and get people to try it? Because you put a compound bow in somebody's hand, you put them at a 20-yard target, show them to work the release, they're going to be hooked, mm-hmm. you know, half a dozen yeah. arrows into it. But if there's no on-ramp, they're going to look at that and say, that looks like a lot of gear I don't understand. I, I don't want to go buy a bow and a bunch of arrows unless I know I like it. So how do we create experiences for people to try it? Where it's easy to fail. Hey, you didn't hit the 10 ring. No problem. Yep. Now, you went to the TAC last year. I did. I mean, I feel like that's something that anyone that likes archery has to do. Do you agree? I do. But if you haven't tried archery yet, you're probably not going to come out. Yeah, you need... You almost need the experience of seeing the course, but having... Having big targets close yes do you agree i I mean i i feel like the locals course should almost be like you know you need to you need to come up with a name to where it's you know it's like people trying it for the first time really big targets don't say beginner but make sure it's the on-ramp or entry level yeah yep yeah i mean 
you know, and it's the tack like, experience course or whatever it is to just go out, shoot some really cool looking targets right. with some really neat settings, but keep them close, but where people can still enjoy the outdoors and the experience of the community and getting to see the booths right. and, and all that stuff. Yeah, and it's like bring a friend because everybody who's into archery and bow hunting, they've got friends who are like, yeah, I'll get to that. It's like, no, bring them out to the Total Archery Challenge. Try that entry-level course. Get a bow in their hand. What's the one thing that Black Rifle did that really that really made a difference to that to that business model or people really understanding what you were doing or what you wanted to do? I would say it's Evan's clarity around creating what we call the coffee club. Yep. Or the subscription. You know, his dream was, hey, why do I have to think about when my coffee's gonna show up? Now, truth be told, he roasts his own coffee so he doesn't worry about that. Yeah. What if I could have a club where coffee comes on a predictable cycle every two, four, six weeks, and I feel like I'm part of something where I get a discount for other things. So I'm drinking my coffee, I'm getting a discount on a Liberty Safe or a PSC bow or ammunition from Federal or something like that. Wouldn't that be amazing? That was his idea from 2014, probably before. And now we're at 128,000 subscribers. We don't know of anybody who's got more than about 10,000. Yeah. So when you get that nice recurring monthly revenue, and again, you can't disappoint those subscribers, but setting the business up to build around subscription was genius. You know what's been awesome, though, is the exclusive club. Oh, yeah. And and I remember when Evan first showed me that first batch, and he talked about the flying elk, and he kind of said, this is what I'm going to do. And I just said... Well, I would rather only have that right. than have the uh, like. Yeah. If you're telling me you're sending me something that's like you've put your thought and your heart into, and you're bringing this bag, yeah. and it's a micro to, lot. Yeah, it's a micro lot. Honestly, now that I've done it for four months, I kind of di- the sucky part is that you can't reorder, right? Because there's We're been there's that. been two so far that. They're all good and different, which is right. nice because they probably last me about three weeks. You know, I I grind I grind two grinders a day. Mm-hmm. You know, the small yeah. the smaller black rifle grinder. It lasts probably three weeks. Right. You know, a bag. But there's been two to where when I'm out or when I go for like my second cup of coffee mm-hmm. for the day and I want something that's not necessarily the same as what I had in the morning. There's been a lot of times where I'm like, damn, I wish I could, you know. Have more. Yeah. The the you flying can, elk was the bomb. Two bags. Oh, okay. You can double up. <laughs> the flying elk yeah. was so freaking good. We and luckily I did get to, I did double up on that. Nice. Not intentionally. I got the first bag. And then um, when I went out to my Montana hunt, I stayed with Paul. Mm. And it, I think it was going to launch that weekend. And I thought, I told Paul, I'm like, crap, dude. I was going to post about this, but I forgot about it. And he's just like, oh, here, just do it with this one. So I took his bag and I ended up. Got the hook up. Yeah. And I was nice. I was doing slow pours in my antelope blind where I was out there for 12 hours a day, you know, losing my mind and <laughs> just keeping my coffee fixed. But, yeah, there's been 
there's been two now that were really awesome. You know, I like the chainsaw now. I really liked the flying elk probably yeah. the best, but it's just cool to have something different. I think him coming up with that and then doing a really good job of making the launch of each one fun. Right. It's a super totally. cool business model. And again, to Evan's credit, when he kicked that idea around internally, and he and I have talked about it for a couple of years, like how do we create a premium club of some sort? Yeah. Is it a separate brand? Is it Black Rifle? So as we briefed it, it's Black Rifle. It's $25 for a 12-ounce bag. It's going to be amazing micro-lot coffee, completely unique and a beautiful package. I said, look, Dude, we're, we're selling 3,000 bags for the first one, Flying Elk. We all thought, literally everybody in the company except Evan, that it might take three, four, five days, maybe a week to sell through it. I was like, nope. Hours. Away. Three and a half, three and <laughs> yeah. a half hours. Yep. And I said, dude, you were the only one who had confidence. Because remember, our core Black Rifle customer might be active duty military, might be a veteran, police, firefighter. Many cases we've trained. They're not up. buying those stretchy pants. They're not. Buying, they're, <laughs> they're not. They're not, not the, paying a hundred bucks for a pair of ABC Lululemons. <laughs> yeah, but you know a lot of those people traded up to Black Rifle from like Folgers or Maxwell House. Yep. Now we're saying twenty-five bucks for twelve ounces of coffee. Now again, you break it down to what does it cost per cup? Maybe seventy-five cents per cup. It's a lot cheaper than going out to Starbucks yeah. and getting their over-roasted coffee. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. All right, dude. Well, I've I've held you a long time. It's been great, John. Yeah, man. I really appreciate it. It's always so – it's fun to talk to people where you learn a new story about them every time, and you've never disappointed. I've, I've got I, a, lot, a lot more stories, too, so we'll <laughs> save it for the next podcast. All right, man. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, appreciate John. it so much. Right, Knock buddy. on, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com